Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. During this season of COVID-19, of uncertainty, of political, social unrest, as believers, we are called to go into deeper worship. God is enthroned in the praises of his people. God inhabits the praises of his people. We don't worship less when life is out of control. We worship more. Last week, we looked specifically at the idea that we don't worship a God because he's useful to us. If we're worshiping him because he's useful, then what we're asking him to do is actually what we're worshiping. It's only when we worship him for his beauty, and his beauty is his glory, and his glory is his beauty. He's weighty, he's real, he's eternal, he's always beautiful, even in our tough times. As we worship him, something happens to us. But also, if we do what the psalmist says in Psalm 27, he says, one thing I ask, one thing I seek is to dwell with the Lord and to gaze, to look upon his beauty. If that becomes the heart cry of the believer, to look upon the beauty of the Lord, then you cannot help but see your own ugliness, your own brokenness, your own areas of your life that are not beautiful, not glorious. And so when we are worshiping, we begin to also need to learn why we confess our brokenness, why we seek forgiveness, why we don't just assume or presume on the forgiveness of the Lord, but we actually are transparent and we're honest. It's so easy in the midst of a crisis to blame everybody but yourself. It's so easy in the midst of hard times to say, if this would just change, one of the hardest things for anybody to admit, but it's part of emotional maturity, is the things in my life do not produce what comes out of me. They just reveal what comes out of me. So if I'm going through an uncertain time or you're going through an uncertain time and I respond to that uncertainty with worry, the circumstance didn't produce the worry. It just revealed the worry. If I'm getting angry, if I'm getting fearful, if I'm getting full of hopelessness, well, the circumstance didn't produce that. It just reveals my brokenness. And now I react to my circumstances out of my brokenness with depression and anger and anxiety. And until I start to say, I've got to deal with me, it really doesn't matter what the circumstances are. So in a way, what God has done in COVID-19 and the situation that we're in right now is he's forcing us to look at ourselves. And you can look away and blame others, and you can look away and blame everything else, but the one you actually have responsibility for and the one you have control over is you. The Holy Spirit fruit in your life doesn't produce control or manipulation of others. It produces self-control. And so that's what he's doing in this time. He's showing you where the fruit has been blocked, where the development has been, has found an obstacle. And so what 
Christians have done throughout seasons like this is they've turned to the Psalms. And I want to turn today to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is called a song of ascents. And what it means is that when you're going up to Jerusalem, you're going to a high place. So wherever you start from is a low place, but you're ascending. You're ascending to the high place. In order to do that, they would sing these songs. They are the Psalms from 120 to 134. They are all songs that are sung by the pilgrims on their pilgrimage to the high place. I believe you are pilgrims on a pilgrimage to a high place. I have never yet seen God ask you to go through a hard time that he doesn't set you on a high place at the end of it. A place of authority, a place of clarity, a, pa- a place above wherever you've been before. And so this song is appropriate for us, but it is also a song that speaks of a, of a kind of devastating, kind of you know raw honesty here. And you'll see it as we read this psalm together. So it's Psalm 130. I do like it when you read out loud with me. I will give this one warning. Once you read it, you're responsible for it. (laughs) Some of you are not reading now, are you? (laughs) So will you read this with me? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the Psalms, particularly these Psalms, which are songs, uh, really songs of repentance, these help us to deal with our feelings. They help us to realize that what we're feeling, other pilgrims have felt before, other believers, other disciples have felt before. This Psalm was actually sung quite often in the 7th century and was called a penitential song. And so as we sing this together, you, you start, or say this together, you start to realize that this is an anti-religious song. Because here's the issue. In religious circles, there's a fear about being honest. You're not being honest because you have to prove that you're good enough or you have to prove that you're better than other people. And so when you're devastated in a religious circle, you still say, praise the Lord, but you don't mean it. Or you say, God is good, but my life sucks. But you don't say the my life sucks part. Because you don't want anybody to know that you're not blessed. You don't want anybody to know that you're struggling. But you see, the Psalms are always dealing with turbulent emotions, intensity, Even they are revealing of the darkness in every believer's soul. And so there's this aspect that if you're going to really go to the high place, 
you're going to have to be radically honest about your emotions. You have to be radically honest about your feelings. This is one of the reasons why religion will not save you. If I could put it in an illustration that's really easy to see, suppose that you were forced to swim from California to Hawaii, and you were told that you could not live unless you could swim from California to Hawaii. Well, I look around the room, and maybe there's some great swimmers here, but the reality is, if we were forced to swim from California to Hawaii, we would all drown. Now, some of you would swim a little further than others. Some of you would swim very short distances. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Because no matter what, none of us are making it to Hawaii. So you could be a Catholic person, and you still drown. You could be a Protestant person, and you would still drown. Even if you were a raging Pentecostal who swung their hands all the time and got strong enough to swim, you would still drown. But you might, as you're passing some of us Presbyterians, say, see, I told you the chosen frozen weren't going to make it. But the problem is we would all drown. You understand, because if religion is your hope, you drown. And it doesn't matter what that religion is called. If your hope is in that you are a better person than somebody else, then you're drowning. And the Psalms are not for religious people because the gospel is not for a religious person. See, a religious person doesn't need the gospel. They just need to be told they're doing well enough. But you see, desperate people need the gospel. Drowning people need the gospel. People who know they're sick need the gospel. People who know they're broken and bankrupt need the gospel because it's not good news to the righteous. It's only good news to those who know they're not righteous. And so the Psalms become like God's counseling book because we're able to say, I know I'm struggling. I know I'm overwhelmed. I know that these feelings that I have are real, but I need to know how to go from drowning to overcoming. From being overcome to overcome, being these issues. Now, the difference in the Psalms than, say, a counseling session, or the difference in the Psalms in a venting session is that you're actually praying your feelings. You're, just not, you're not just spewing your feelings. You are staying engaged with God even though you're hurting. You're staying engaged with God even though you're overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but this has been one of the hardest seasons of my life. I have never felt such stress and so little ability to do anything about things. I feel responsible, but I don't feel like I have a place where I can make very much of a difference. I remember when I had COVID, I bound it, I gagged it, I tore it to the ground, I cut it in half, I did everything I could think of to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it still kicked my butt. It wasn't for a lack of praying, friends. It's, there are times in our lives where the circumstances of our lives are over our heads. And it's in those moments where the psalmist helps us 
to begin to know, how do I not drown when I seem to be drowning? Well, the biggest issue, are you tracking with me a little bit? So the biggest issue of this is that the psalmist says, go into the presence of your God. The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. But they're only safe if they stay honest. You know, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He won't let you stay 30 seconds in your fantasies. He's always going to reveal the truth and the truth about you and the truth about your situation. So what usually comes up as you come into the presence of the beauty of God is your own guilt begins to manifest. But even worse than guilt, your own shame begins to manifest in his presence. And what happens is that your whole life can flash before you in the presence of God. Now, sometimes it can be just the enemy accusing you. But at times, there is this sense of failure. There's this sense of general unworthiness. That's why many people, as they draw near to God, draw back from God because they feel their own failure. And they feel their own unworthiness. And they start to see where they have their own limitations and liabilities. As a matter of fact, one person said New York, the whole area, the tri-state area around New York City, is filled with some of the most guilty, shameful people. And the reason is people are driven to such success here that they're trying to cover how guilty and shameful they actually feel. The most successful someone is driven towards is usually an indication of a deep-rooted guilt and shame. And so the psalmist begins to speak into this inner place, not, not the surface issues of your life, but the inner place of strength and the inner place of your control center of your heart. And he calls what you're dealing with and what I'm dealing with, he calls it basically a sinkhole, a sort of sinkhole of guilt and shame. And he says, out of every human heart, there are these depths, there's this deep. Now, it's interesting because in, in some ways I, I like the sinkhole imagery, but it, literally in the, in the Hebrew, the ancient world was fearful. They were terrified of the sea. The sea was the most threatening, insecure place for the ancients. And so what he's really imagining here is that he's out in the sea. There's nowhere to go. The harder he works, the tired he gets, so the more desperate he becomes. And the more he works, the worse it gets. So that he knows that he's over his head. He knows that he's out of his depths. Sounds a little bit like COVID-19 in some ways. Sounds a little bit like the political situation we find ourselves in. Sounds like the social injustices that we've seen. All of these things that it seems like the more you work, the worse it gets. And as soon as you think there's hope, it gets worse again. As soon as you let one thing you know, go, another comes. So the idea here of the psalmist is, is very real to every one of us. Even other places, the psalmist says it this way, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Maybe I'm the only one that feels like this. Are you with me in this? All homeschoolers feel this way right now, right? Amen. So the idea here is, 
It's a psychological thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. And I can't do anything about it, is what he's saying. The more I try, the worse it gets. But what is it he's thinking in? See, if it were simply a crisis, he would cry out to God for help. Help me out of this crisis. But that's not what he prays. He says, have mercy on me. So though it is a psychological manifestation, it is of spiritual origin. And the issue that he's dealing with is not the world is sinking him, his guilt and shame are sinking him. His own life, his own past, his own heart is what's sinking him. Now, you all may not do this to me, but there are a lot of people who will speak to me and they will say to me, I do not believe in your message. And they say it this way. They say, you all are the most pessimistic. You have the worst view of humanity. You have such a negative view of people. We've done away with all this guilt stuff. And so it's possible that if you're listening to me, you have in your mind, if we just get rid of guilt, we'll be okay. And so what I'd like to, to talk about for a few minutes is the issue in your life and mine is not primarily guilt. It's not that there isn't guilt, but that's not the, that's not the real issue. The issue is shame. Shame is the sinker of everybody's life. It is the thing that makes you go under and not have power to overcome. And so I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about how in our culture there is a constant bar bombardment against getting rid of guilt. So what we see is these days people don't hide their secrets like they used to. There are things that are expressed and confessed in our society that 30 or 40 years ago people would never have talked about. So there's a sense of openness and a sense about all kinds of deep Secrets are no longer secrets. And, and, and what used to be, in a sense, a traditional morality has been completely gotten rid of. So if you do that and you get rid of all the rules and you get rid of the morality, then supposedly you get rid of the guilt. But the psalmist isn't really talking about guilt. He's not really referring to any breaking of the rules. And yet he feels himself sinking. He feels himself a failure. He feels himself a loser. See, those aren't guilt words. Those are shame words. Follow me in this, okay? He's not talking simply about what he's done. See, guilt is always really specific. I don't know if you grew up this way. Maybe this was just my mother's thing. But she loved to make us ashamed. I mean, she, would, she would, wouldn't just go, you broke the rules, you're going to get punished. She would look at me and say, what is wrong with you? How can you do those kind of things? What, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And I, I'm saying it because she was very dramatic. <laughs> I mean, she used to say stuff, I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life and I, all this stuff. But I, I will tell you this. If there was a beating, mom do it, don't tell dad. I mean, that was certainly the case. But, but the idea of my mother was, there's something wrong with you. 
You didn't just do something wrong. There's something wrong with you. Do you know, here I am 61 years old, and I can remember that feeling of being told not you did something wrong, maybe you should do it this way, but rather what is wrong with you that you did it that way, which seared something in my conscience, put something in my brain that constantly, and I don't, again, I don't think it's my mom's fault. I think that just registered so well with me. You should be ashamed of yourself. And that doesn't go away easily. Guilt goes away pretty easily. You can say you're sorry. You can try to make up for it. Shame is seared on the brain. And so the idea here is shame is I feel bad about who I am, not just what I do. Guilt, I broke the rules. There's a concreteness to guilt. But let me take shame another, another step. Is shame is also based on the vision of yourself that you hoped you would be. The vision you had for yourself that you hoped you would be. Let me give you a, a simple illustration of this. So we have a, a granddaughter. She, she was fostered by my daughter and son-in-law. She became our adopted, our adopted uh, granddaughter. And so she's so special to us. But she also has some special needs in her life. There's some things where her words and other things have not developed as easily. And so we're all very, like we're always jumping on how can we encourage her? How can we, you know, kind of applaud her? Because she responds really well to positive reinforcement. So she was in the town where they lived, just outside of Atlanta, and she was in this town. And one day she saw a fire truck. And she got so excited about the firemen. But, and she struggles with the words a little bit. She started saying, I want to be a firefighter. <laughs> you know, and she started talking about being a firefighter. And here, you know, she's four years old now. And she's, she's starting to have a vision. And she's starting to have a little hope. I can become a firefighter. And so guess what grandma did? Went on Amazon, got the fire truck, got the fire hat, got the fire <laughs> outfit, got the fire boots, sent it to the granddaughter. Because, you know, that little bit of positive, we want to jump on it and, and say, okay, this is awesome to start getting a dream for your futures, to start having a vision of what you can become. But you understand most of us don't become what we dreamed we would become. And even though you may push it away, there's still that part of you that says, I wanted to play for the Yankees, and you never did. Or you hate the Yankees, maybe it's the Mets, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you wished you were a professional athlete. And, and you go, well, that was just those little things of youth. No, friends, those were the hopes and dreams of being somebody. Somebody with some significance. In the Bible, the opposites of those two words are really very important. The opposite of guilt is innocence. But the opposite of shame in the Bible is glory. So in other words, when you are experiencing shame, you are realizing your own deficit of glory. Are you hearing me? What is glory? Well, it's beauty. But it's also weight, weightiness, heaviness. It's also worth and value. 
Do you understand? All of us talk about, don't we talk about self-esteem, self-confidence? Don't we talk about self-worth? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about glory. So if you're weighed down with shame, then you do not, you have the absence of glory and the absence of beauty. Well, let's, uh, let me, uh, let me illustrate this with something. So suppose that you have this view of yourself, that you're a person of worth, or you're a person of value, but you lie. And so you tell this lie. And so lying will produce both guilt and shame. It's guilt because you, you broke God's commandment. But it produces shame in a whole different way is because when you lie, you are revealing that you're a coward. You're revealing that you don't have the courage to tell the truth. You're revealing that this facade of integrity is not real, which then produces shame, which has to be covered up because you don't want anyone to know what a coward you are. You don't want anyone to know what a lack of integrity you have. You don't want anyone to know that you're so scared of the truth and you're scared of the consequences of the truth. Now, <laughs> There's nothing like family and there's nothing like marriage to bring out the coward in you. And, and I, you know, when I married Lisa, I thought I'm a spiritual leader. I, I was a past, pastor of a church. I was going to seminary. I'm going to be a great Christian father, great Christian husband. I was just full of it, friends, and because I was a coward. There is no one who has revealed my cowardice more than my wife. When we got married... Um, I had come from a, a kind of a difficult background and stuff. And, I, and finally, I got this job at a church, preaching at a church. And we were making a little bit of money. So I went to the store. I had promised myself I would, I would supply myself with three musketeer candy bars. But I didn't want Lisa to have my three musketeer candy bars. So I hid them in my office at church because... I would buy her her own, but she couldn't touch mine. So I hid them from her. And one day she's rifling through my drawer and she finds my candy bars. And she looks at me like I killed her. <laughs> I thought you had more integrity than this. I thought you loved me more than this. I, all kinds of things. You know what? I, I turned into a five-year-old at that moment. Now, what I decided to do was not to be honest and always share my candy bar. I just decided to hide them better. <laughs> I'm not trying to prove, I'm not being a role model right now. You understand, on the outside, I had a position in the church. On the outside, I had all of these other things but I wasn't who I hoped I would be. I couldn't even share my candy bars. And then when I was caught, all I wanted to do was hide them better. <laughs> There's gonna be some marital issues after this. Are you tracking with me on this? Do you understand shame isn't just you've done something awful. Shame is you haven't even lived up to your own image of yourself. You haven't even become the person you present yourself to be. And you haven't become the person that you were 
destined to be. Are you quiet because you're listening? Because you're hearing me? You see, when we begin to worship God, we've got to deal with shame. But we must understand that we're living in a society that has shame all around us, even though they suppress guilt. There's a couple of things that, that really impressed me as I was studying for this. One, one comes from the liter literary world, and one comes from the world of academia. So Franz Kafka, if you read any of his books, you will be depressed, but, but he's a brilliant writer. And in his memoirs, he wrote this. He's not in any way a believer in God, not a Christian in any way. But he says this. He says, we feel like sinners, even though independent of guilt. So in other words, you can take all the rules away. You can change all the gender roles. You can change all the sexual orientation roles. You can get rid of anything that in any way would ever make you feel guilty. And Kafka says, but we still feel like sinners. And then there's a, 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 a brilliant sociologist who wrote in the 60s and 70s. His name was Ernest Becker. His books are, are very powerful studies of, of the idea of evil and where evil comes from. And he, again, not a totally secular, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe, follow any religious practices. And his, his you know, his stuff is very complex, but if I can sum it up, it's, he says it this way. All human beings have an innate sense of insignificance. Deeply inside, we feel the need to prove that that's wrong. So when he talks about this deep sense of insignificance, what's he talking about? He's talking about an absence of glory. So even in a secular way, though, you could get rid of all the potential rules that you could break and feel guilty for, even though in our society it says it doesn't matter what anybody else tells you, just do what your own heart tells you, still there is this tremendous sense of insignificance. And Kafka even says we are sinners even though we don't know what guilt is. And so here is basically the definition of sin from the Bible. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, in a way, you are insignificant and you are aware of your insignificance when you have not received the glory of God as the source of your significance. And anything that you do, Becker's, uh, Becker's, his conclusion is that we try to even be heroic to prove we're not insignificant. That even the most monstrous dictators were trying to overcome their sense of insignificance by having control of the whole world. That our need to get rid of this insignificance is what drives us, he says. Well, you know what the Bible calls that? That's your fig leaf. It's, it's your own way of covering up, whether it's your family, your job, whether it's your money or your health or whatever it is, it's all a way to cover up how insignificant we feel. Why is this psalm so important? Because we get to come and open up our need. We get to open up our hearts. We get to bring our brokenness. We get to bring all that we are to God. 
in a way that we no longer have to pretend like we're significant when we're not. This is one of the most difficult things in religious circles because we've all worked so hard to be good people that we don't realize that actually trying to be good people keeps you farther from God than brings you close to God. That what we have to realize is it's not that important anymore that you prove you're significant. What's important is that you're honest about your insignificance. That instead of trying to say, look how much better a person I am than this person or that person, you begin to say, we're all insignificant without the significance of God in our life. It is not that Christianity makes you a better person. Christianity allows you, an insignificant person, to receive the glory of God in a significant way so that your worth and your value and the love of God and all these things becomes your overwhelming help in times of trouble. It is only offered to insignificant people. And it's only when we acknowledge our own sinking and our own need for this that it becomes real to us. So first the writer talks about the hole we're in the deep. But then he starts to talk about the rope that is offered to us in the hole. Now, I like this idea because, you know, if somebody else tries to jump in the hole with you, they'll just drown. You don't want your friend, if you're sinking, to jump into the sinking with you. They'll probably take you down faster. What you need is your friend to give you the rope. And to anchor the rope in something outside of the hole that will draw you out. And in, and in verse 3, we begin to realize the scripture teaches us that we've got to take hold of the rope that's being offered to us in the hole that we find ourselves in. So, so here's what I like. Okay, The psalmist says it this way. He says, God, if you keep the record of my sins, if you hold the record of my sins against me, who can stand? So what, what is the psalmist saying? This is actually good news, friends. He's saying that, that the record means there's a standard. A standard is good news because the issue isn't merely that you've got a, 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 a psychological complex. It's not merely that you're the subject of all your childhood issues. That's not why you struggle you struggle because you're insignificant. You struggle because you need someone who's significant to give you a rope and get you out of your insignificance. And it can't be you. But you notice what happens in our society these days. You, you see a serial killer gets caught. They don't say anything about real sin or real issues or real evil or anything. They're almost afraid to call a person evil. They call them complex. They'll say, well, that he grew up in this childhood issues where he was deprived of this, this, and this. And they want to explain it psychologically. They want to explain it in all these different ways. Guess what, friends? Every one of you in this room is broken. You all have complexes. They just haven't named them all yet. We all have childhood issues. Even the best parents in here should be saving up for their kids' counseling when they get older. College fund, counseling fund, come on. When they write their grief journals, you're going to be in it. 
What were the five most devastating things they said? Well, mom said this, 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 and this. Right? And you love them, and you still screw them over. Right? So it has to be something more than just psychological. And therefore, there has to be something more than just a coping mechanism in the pit, in the deep. So here's why having a record and a standard matter. There are things that are wrong. And when they're wrong, you should feel guilty because then you can change them. Guilt can be a friend to change. I mean, you've got to realize that the worst people in the world resisted their guilty feelings and did what they did, even though their conscience was telling them this is not good. So resisting true guilt is not an advantage, it's a disadvantage. But there's false guilt that needs to be resisted because it's wrong. It's not really a guilt thing. It's a false thing. So think through this with me for a minute. Again, this is kind of using Kafka. But he wrote a book about a man who was accused but never told what he's accused of. So he's in prison, and every time he says, what have you accused me of? They say, something very serious. What have you accused me of? Something grave and, and horrible, but they will not tell him what he's accused of, and eventually his jailer just kills him. That will never be a Disney movie. <laughs> but isn't that the way that you can be in the worst of bondage? You know you've done something wrong, but you don't know what it is? I've literally, I have a friend in a church who was kicked out of the church and he kept going to the church leaders and saying, what did I do? And you know, others went and interceded for him and they said, what did he do? Here's what they said. He did something so horrible I cannot describe it. I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> or else he didn't do it. If you can't describe it, if you can't tell me what it is, then it's false. You see, it's a, it's a blessing, God says, do not commit a, a murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Because now you know what the standard is. And when you break the rule, you know what the guilt is. Yeah. Are you tracking with me in this? So here's what the psalmist says. I, in Hebrew, it's a little more personal. He say, he's basically saying this, Lord, it's your eyes on me that matter. It is only the eyes of the Lord that matter. It's only the will of God for your life that matters. See, what has to happen if you're really going to overcome shame is it has to be the eyes of the Lord, not the eyes of the people that matter. It has to be what he says. So, so think about it in a very practical way. Suppose your parents wanted you to be something different than you are. Suppose they said you should be a lawyer, but now you're not a lawyer. Or suppose they said you need to go to an Ivy League school or you're nobody, and you, and you didn't go to the Ivy League school. So how do I judge? Should I feel guilty about not being what my parents wanted me to be? Absolutely not. Why? Is it a sin to miss out on Ivy League schools? Is it a sin to not be a lawyer? Sometimes it's a sin to be a lawyer, but is it a sin 
to not be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is. Of course it's not. But you have to decide whose eyes matter. Do my parents' eyes matter more than God's? Because if they do, then you're going to live in shame and you will never get out of the deep. But if the eyes of the Lord are what matter, then you go, I love you, parents, but I'm doing the will of God. And he has a better plan for me than you do because he actually knows the end from the beginning. You do not. But there's also this other issue that there are plenty of people who will, who will lead you and encourage you into sin. There are a lot of people that I've met with that they, they were told, you're in a loveless marriage. Your spouse is not affectionate. Your spouse is not physically uh, attracted to you or whatever. You have the right to go and commit adultery with somebody else. Okay, so in the eyes of their friends, they were justified. But is there a justification in the eyes of God for betraying your vows? For having made promises that you don't keep? Does not the scripture say it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it? Are you tracking with me in this? See, it gets very clear when it's the eyes of God, it gets very clear what your guilt is. The guilt doesn't come from the eyes of other people. You're actually letting others shame you. There are a lot of shame words that I hear people, I'm a failure. That's not a guilt word. That's a, fame, that's a shame word. I'm a loser. That's a shame word. I can never do anything right. That's a shame word. Am I, am I making this clear enough? Because I, I feel it so deeply that we have got to overcome more than guilt. We've got to start overcoming this issue of shame in our lives. Here's what Paul says about it. I'm, I see the music's coming, so I've got to talk fast. In, in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, 4, 3 through 4, I'm not going to read it. I'll just summarize it for you. Paul says this, I'm not going to let any of you judge me, nor am I going to let your opinions of me have any weight in my view of myself. See, so he's saying, I'm going to tell you whose eyes matter. Then he says this. You see, that a, lot of, a lot of people I know would say, way to go, Paul. Stand up to those people. But then he says something people today do not say. He says, but I'm not going to judge myself either. I don't have anything pressing on me that makes me feel guilty right now, he says, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. I've seen some people pretty guilty who have no idea how guilty they are. I've seen abusers. I've seen people who manipulate. I've seen people who use their authority wrongly, and in their minds, they're just doing it for God. So Paul had even a deeper sense that even though I don't sense I'm doing anything wrong, I'm not going to be the one that judges me either. He says, the one who judges me is God. It's his eyes that matter, not mine. And so one of the things that I find is that you've got to get past not only other people judging you, but you've got to get past your own judgment of yourself. And then you've got to say, God, you're the only righteous judge that there is. And you take hold of the rope. Now, why is this so important? <laughs> in, the, in the Old Testament, there was, this, there was this practice on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, where they had to go and get two goats. 
And they would cast lots, and one goat would be offered to God as a sacrifice, and they would slit its throat, and its blood would pour out on the altar, and it would be a, a sacrifice for the penalty of sin. But they had the second goat, and the second goat was called the scapegoat. So here's what the priest would do. He would, he would confess the sins of the people, and he would lay those sins, he would confess it into the goat, in a sense, onto the goat. And he would lay the sins of the people on that goat, and then the goat would be led like five, six miles outside of town, and then would be thrown over a cliff so that the sins were taken away. They were remitted. And then they were, you know, they were, they were given to this poor goat. Here's the deal with that. One is it, it absolutely shows you how important your guilt and your shame is. That every year this picture was given that a goat had to be sacrificed and a goat had to become the scapegoat. And the only way to get rid of your guilt was to impute it to something else, to transfer it to something else. But it was an inadequate sacrifice. It was only meant as a, as a foretelling, as a forerunner. Because you see, the goat couldn't give you any righteousness back. It could, in a sense, signify the taking away of your sin. It could signify the paying of a penalty for your sin, but it couldn't give anything to you. You could give all your stuff to it, but it had nothing to give back to you. So though there was this symbol, there was little hope of really taking your shame away. It dealt with your guilt, but not your shame. The goat was just in place until Jesus would come and be, be your scapegoat. That Jesus himself, it's scripture is really clear. He who knew no sin became your sin. So all the things that were spoken into the goat were now spoken into Jesus and he became those sins for you. He became the blood sacrifice for you, but he also became the scapegoat for you. Now, though he was taken outside of the city and though he was raised up to die, death could not hold him. And he was resurrected to newness of life and he now puts his righteousness, his death, his resurrection to your account so that the rope you're holding onto is a rope of glory and beauty and significance. Because now, if you've taken hold of Christ, then you've taken hold of the righteousness of Christ. Not only your guilt is dealt with, but your shame is dealt with because instead of being insignificant, you are as significant as the Son of God. When the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ and he says, you're as righteous as Jesus. When the Father looks at you, he looks at you with his covenantal steadfast love and he says, you're as loved as Jesus. But you gotta take hold of the rope. This is, this is what kind of blew me away in this Psalm 130 is it says it doesn't happen unless you slow down. It says, wait on the Lord. Like the watchman waits for the morning. Have you ever had to like be sick all night and just hope for the dawn to come or you're waiting all night for the sun to rise and it just seems like it takes forever, doesn't it? And yet the scripture says, if you really want to deal with your shame, you've got to wait on the Lord. 
And then it says you got to wait expectantly. You wait in hope. You wait in certainty that your shame has been taken away. But it also says, and this is where we come into each other's lives. It says, Israel, wait on the Lord. Israel, your Redeemer, your new hope is the Lord. Here's the deal. If I wait on you to save me, I just pull you in. But if you and I hold the rope together, then we all rise up together. And our hope and our weight is not disappointed. Here, these are my final words before I turn it over to Ashley here. Friends, you've got to have a new hope. Your hope can't be in a vaccine. Your hope can't be in a government. Your hope cannot be in anything of this earth. Most of it's insignificant. But your hope has to be in a new hope of that rope that the Lord has extended to you, that he is your scapegoat, but he's also your righteousness, that he has transferred to you the glory that is his. Because you and I have to have a redeemer in order to go from insignificance to significance. I'm just going to ask if you feel comfortable if you would stand with me as we close this morning. For those of you watching at home, you don't have to stand, but if you would be willing to um, just kind of take a moment and kind of pause and wait on the Lord and just ask Him to reveal the places in your life where maybe you've been holding on to other ropes. Father, we just take a moment and we just allow you to speak to those places where maybe we've been holding on to other ropes. Father, would you just reveal those places to us? <laughs> 